Hi, my name is Ruby, and I am Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant. You're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast episode you'll be listening to today is called How to Create and Maintain a Sexual Sense of Self in Motherhood. Produced and originally published by Stephanie Webb, holistic nutritionist and eating psychology coach. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the episode. With someone that you may have heard of and you may already love. She's way famous, and I was super honored for her to take the time to talk with me. This was yet another interview that I did last year for the Happy Healthy Mom Summit. So because of that, this is geared towards mothers. So we're definitely going to talk about motherhood, marriage relationships in this interview. But today is a conversation with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. She's known as the sex therapist. She's amazing. And her insight into womanhood, into sexuality as a woman is mind-blowing. You guys are going to love this interview so much. So here is Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. But we're so honored to have you here today. So Jennifer's going to talk to us today about how to create and maintain a sexual sense of self in motherhood. And she is the expert on this. So I'm so excited for everyone to hear your point of view. So let me tell everyone a little bit about you. So Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife is an LDS licensed psychotherapist specializing in relationship and sexuality counseling. In addition to her dissertation research, on LDS women's sexuality and relationship to desire. She has taught college level human sexuality courses as well as community and internet based workshops focused on relationships and sexuality. Her clinical work focuses primarily on helping individuals and couples achieve greater satisfaction and passion in their emotional and sexual relationships. So Jennifer, tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how you got interested in this topic and how you got to this point in life. Sure. So, well, I grew up LDS as in Mormon. And so I, and then I, um, you know, I observed a lot of things around what it was to be, of course, for anyone who's not familiar with it, it's a, it's a more traditional framing of what it is to be female, like many religious institutions are. And so I grew up thinking a lot about what it was to be a woman, what it was to be female, kind of what the cultural norms were both inside my church and outside of it. And so when I went to my undergraduate, I studied psychology and women's studies because I cared a lot about mm-hmm. women's experience and understanding it. Um, and then I went on to get my PhD in counseling psychology. And I always cared a lot about relationships, what made marriages work well, what didn't. Mm-hmm. I was just like, even as a literally a 10-year-old, I was watching people a lot, thinking about these mm-hmm. things a lot. And so I went to get my PhD and I knew I wanted to work on couples counseling and that was my focus. But then I was also asked to teach a human sexuality course when I was trying to decide on my dissertation topic. And so I was at a Jesuit college and so I was teaching Catholics uh, a lot about, uh, I was teaching them this human sexuality course and through their essays I was recognizing a lot of the similar anxieties that particularly the women we're talking about in relationship to their sexuality, having grown up as well in a religious culture. And that pushed me into um, really thinking about what Mormon women's experiences were particularly. And so that led me to my dissertation topic. And so since then I have been teaching a lot and doing a lot of, um, of counseling around women's sexuality as well as couples sexuality. And it's an excellent I love it. It's a great uh, way to help people. So yes, and I think not something a lot of people are talking about, at least in my yeah. circle. So I, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you're putting this out there because I think it's such an important topic, especially for women and mothers to understand. Um, yes. 
So I feel like a lot of moms have this experience that once they start having children, that that sexual desire really just kind of plummets. Yes. Um, so tell us what are some of the factors that contribute to that happening? Yeah. So let me just start with what I think are just like the normal biological realities around it, which is sleep deprivation. When your body is being really taxed, sexual desire will go down. If you're physically ill, okay. If you're under enormous amount of stress, if you're getting no sleep, okay. Which, you know, several of those factors are very much alive when you have a newborn, right? Yeah. And so, you know, that, those kinds of things are absolutely at play. Uh, the hormonal shifts that have gone on for many women as they're, you know, nursing and postpartum and all of that. And so that's clearly an important factor, especially in the, the very early stages of motherhood. And then I think a piece that's really very much alive is this, there's a huge identity shift that's happening for women. And that you're moving from an identity as either a woman or a wife or a professional um, into the identity of a mother. And I think that's, it's a wonderful identity and so on, but it's, it's stressful. It can be a stressful transformation to really own this identity and this sense of yourself. Yeah. And it can evoke for people a lot of the narratives that they have been given around what it is to be a mother and what it is to parent a child. And these aren't always helpful messages. And that is to say, I think we have a, a culture that, you know, the, certainly in religious culture, this is alive, but it's alive in the larger culture as well, which is the idea that really wow. good mothers and really good women are less sexual than men are, right? Mm. And let me sort of back up a little. I think there's sort of the basic premise that sexuality is a threat to goodness. So I think that many of us have internalized that idea and that good women um, and good mothers sort of suppress or push down their sexuality if they're good. So I think that's an idea that we kind of inherit, okay, whether or not we come from religious communities. It's an idea that's out there. And then I think this idea that because sexuality is threatening and good women um, deny their sexuality, that good women or good mothers also deny their desires. Mm. Kind of in line with this, that if you're really a good mother, you're going to sacrifice. So this kind of notion of being selfless and self-sacrificing, if you're going to be a good mother, is really alive for people. And they will, and as I'll talk about in a minute, I mean, that's definitely a part of early motherhood. You, yeah. There is a suppression of self that is required in some ways mm. if you're going to be getting up multiple times a night and you're nursing and you're, you know, you, everybody yeah. kind of knows this gets sort of pushed onto you in a sense. And so there is a definite suppression of self that's happening. But a lot of people get kind of caught in that paradigm. Like this mm. comes, the paragon of virtue is to self-suppress, to deny all your wants, to never do anything to take care of yourself and so on. And so sexuality, because we see it as somewhat dangerous, because we see it as good women suppress their desires, sexual and, and otherwise, that, and because we don't want to infect our children with anything dangerous, okay, mm -hmm. that many women in this identity shift start to suppress their sexuality, right? And so there is these biological factors that are happening, but then there's this identity shift, and a lot of times people, without even really recognizing it, start to kind of move into an identity that they have seen modeled around them in which they push down their sense of self, their desires, and their sexuality. 
And so it's very normal, but I would argue not good for being a good mother, actually, not mm. good for being a happy woman, and really ultimately not good for raising up children that know how to move into adulthood well. Oh, yes, which everyone wants. Even, yes. even those of us who you know, do sacrifice so much for kids, we want the best for them. So I think if nothing else, we need to figure this out yes. for the sake of our children and, and our daughters to not kind yes. of do the same thing. So I think we often do see our sexuality and motherhood or you know, virtuous womanhood as incongruent or incompatible. Yes. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, again, I think it's this idea that it's that, well, I think, you know, all of us have inherited a society in which men's view of reality has kind of prevailed. Mm. Okay. And so when you have one gender or the other that sort of gets to dominate our narrative about what sexuality is, it's going to favor the person who gets to dominate the narrative. Mm. Okay. So particularly in religious culture, but also in other cultures, it, you know, it's men have, men's view of sexuality has prevailed. Yeah. And so I think men have constructed their notions of women's sexuality in reference to men's sexuality, mm. right? And so men who are very human, just like we as women are, and who have anxieties about their sexuality have tended to create narratives around women being the lesser sex, hmm. desiring sex less than men, that they're sexually less competent than men are. So women have been really given this idea that they are sort of sexually incompetent relative to men as it should be. Mm. And like men may be brutes and sexually interested, but that's sort of, that makes, that's just part of being a man. Mm. But a good woman just doesn't do this, right? Yes. And, so, and so I think it's, in some ways I would say, it makes sense to me. I think it's normal. I think sexuality is a very powerful way of being in relationship to others. And so you want, I guess what I would say there is a normal amount of anxiety around sexuality. Mm. But what we often do is that we manage our sexuality by kind of shaming it and particularly shaming it in women, um, kind of to be the ones that are the gatekeepers or the managers of men around sexuality. Mm -hmm but we do a really deep disservice to women when we do that because we teach women that they can't really integrate their sexual identity. They can't really let that be a part of their sense of self. And I think that really undermines women's strength and self-knowledge and self-confidence because if you have to push down a fundamental part of being a human being and a fundamental part of being a woman in order to let yourself believe you're good, you are shutting off a really important part of what it is to be yourself Yeah, and to be whole. And so we do ourselves a really deep disservice. And just referencing what I you know, said earlier, if you're going to be a really good mother or parent, you want to teach your children to be whole and they're referencing your ability to be whole. Mm. And so it's really important that we figure out what those sort of false narratives are so we can see our way through a little more clearly. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So how can women, mothers, kind of mitigate against that loss of self, that loss of sexual desire that does occur when, like those biological <laughs> demands that you talked about, like lack of sleep and hormones? And yeah, I guess what can we do about that? Yeah, well, I think that, first of all, I think that 
seeing it as uh, somewhat normal and temporary helps a lot, you know, mm. it, especially in that beginning, if you can just kind of recognize like this is going to be a tough go for a little bit. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to have a lot of sleep. I'm not going to feel very sexual. Probably there's going to be a lot of things going on And the better that a person and or a couple can kind of ride that wave without mm. uh, making it too personal or getting too you know, clearly the better that that is. Yeah. And it's pretty intensive for a few months, you know, as everybody knows who's had a newborn. But with time, you know, your body starts to get back to normal. You get more established in a routine. A baby starts to, you know, if, if the baby is developmentally de uh, developing in normal ways, you start to move into more of a routine. And I think that one of the really important ways to mitigate that in the beginning is to, is to, well, let me say there's two things. One is that there's this idea of recognizing that it's a normal and, um, and then saying like, are, what are ways, let me see if I can say this clearly. So recognizing it as normal, but also recognizing that the pressure is on me to not take care of myself. The pressure mm -hmm. is on me to, in some ways, self-deny, but not in a way that's really going to be good for me or help me. And so I need to recognize that part of enjoying being a mother, loving my child, and maintaining kind of a happiness in my life has a lot to do with me working against the pressure on me to craft space for myself and to see it as unequivocally good, right? You know, I kind of grew up with this idea that anytime you take away from your children, the more they'll suffer. Yes. Okay, so, I mean, I just it was kind of like, I'd feel guilty if I would go do something with a friend, kind of yeah. like they're home suffering right now. And, <laughs> and it made it so, like, even when I was away, like I would enjoy it, but I'd be feeling anxious the whole mm -hmm. time, even though they were in absolutely competent hands with my husband or of if we course. had someone helping us. Right. And, um, and so I remember a couple of years in, I had my oldest who had special needs and a newborn and we one of the things I wanted to do besides be a therapist was I wanted to be a residential architect. And we were blessed with the possibility of being able to renovate our little house and make it more workable for our needs. Cool. And so I was able to take time away from pretty demanding parental responsibilities with a special needs child and, and, a, and a young baby and really invest in like, working with the architects to create a space that would really work for our family. And I loved it, loved it, loved it. Like, and it was so rejuvenating for me. And I remember recognizing this is not a zero sum game. I go and I spend two hours away and my kids are being cared for. Do they miss me? Yes. Do I miss them? A little. <laughs> you know, but when I would come home, it, I, it, we were all better for it. I mm. felt sort of like I belonged to parts of myself mm. and that I was really happy to see them when I would come home because I felt not just that I was always in this giving taxed position, but that I could go and be rejuvenated, that I could belong to other aspects of my personhood and have actually more to give when I came home. Mm. Right. And so, you know, of course, somebody could go too far in that direction and, and then neglect their children. Okay. So yeah. negligence is obviously not what we want. Right. But what is the balance of me being able to belong to my own personhood, to be in a position to really love well and give well? 
if we don't make space for that, we will resent our children. Mm. And we will give them the message, even if we're not trying to, that they are a burden to us. Mm. And that we kind of long for them to not be around us. And kids yeah. track that. Okay. And so part of your responsibility of being um, a good parent to your children is to take care of yourself or to do what it is you need to do to be long to yourself at the same time that you love and care for others. And that's true in our relationships to our partners as well as to our children. And it's sometimes, especially for women, the message that gets lost. And so valuing that, being able to recognize that investment in oneself is really parallel to investment in others. Mm. And so we, that finding wisdom in that balance is a really important part of parenting well and loving well. But it is a balance to be found and recognizing that the fulcrum isn't just entirely against, you know, a wave, how to say, it, you know, that it's only in the favor of the children. It right. does need to also include our needs, even if that fulcrum is more um, in the children's favor in the, when they're young and yeah. moves more to the center as they age and need you less, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I love that. So what role do you think the quality of the marriage relationship plays in that dynamic of a woman's sexuality? I mean, I think it plays a huge role, especially, you know, as when a woman becomes pregnant, um, assuming that's the way she becomes a mother, she's sort of biologically being pressured into an identity shift. She can feel the baby moving inside of her. She's starting to become aware of this organism that she's already getting really attached, usually, to the idea of who this person is going to be. Mm. And so she has a biological advantage over the father in that, in that transition. For fathers, it's more of a choice to really allow that identity shift to happen when that baby mm. shows up. Yeah. And when it doesn't go well, the husband resents the baby and the attention that he takes from his wife and in some ways competes with the baby mm. for the caretaking and the attention. When, right, some fathers do that, okay? When a father instead says, look, you know, we chose to have a baby and I'm going to invest in this child as well. And even if my wife is the one who's the primary caretaker or she's working part-time and, and does more than half of uh, the share, that I will really be an invested partner, both in acknowledging what she's offering, what she's giving in the day-to-day, -day, and really rolling up my sleeves and also giving. When a woman tracks, she truly has a partner um, who's invested in the family, is invested in her, right? Then that can make a huge difference in her ability to really feel that she belongs to herself. Mm. Now, what I would say as a kind of caveat around that is what sometimes people do, and this is not the same thing, is sometimes women move into this all sacrificing must happen for these children and my husband must do it too and we must neglect our relationship and if he's a good husband he will do it also mm. and if he even wants sex it means he's selfish and bad <laughs> so sometimes people do that which is like this is what really matters to me is these kids my identity is wrapped around mm. this whole entirely that doesn't work so well it has to be like we are a partnership and it's primary. And we as partners, sexual partners, romantic partners, are also raising up a family. Mm -hmm. And how do we 
divide that out? How do we make this work in our family? How do we make it work for the two of us? But it's a partnership that you're collaborating to create that reality. So it's not sort of the tyranny of the children's needs dominate at all costs or even the husband's needs dominate at all costs because that happens too. Mm. But a wiser way of really partnering as adults and then fostering the well-being of these children. And when couples know how to really partner and collaborate that way, they make room for their romantic sexual relationship. They recognize that it really matters. And it even matters in being able to parent well. Mm. I love that. So what other recommendations do you have for, for women to help women be whole women? Like you mentioned earlier, that when we're suppressing our sexuality, we're not being whole beings. While we're nurturing young children, how can we kind of be those whole people? Yeah. So I think, first of all, I think, you know, to everything I've been saying, which is getting rid of the idea that it's going to hurt your children. Because I, I think it's a false idea. So I think yeah. if you can really see, like, the more that I am whole and happy, the more I'm in a position to love and invest, right? And the better that I, how to say it, loving and investing is not, it, it requires sacrifice unequivocally, mm-hmm. but it's not just I have to sort of give up everything. Okay, yeah. so loving investing out of wisdom also can make you feel more whole. So that's also true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think recognizing it's not just about self-denial. That's the, maybe the way I would say it. Mm. But I think that's really huge. And then I think another idea is that to recognize that sexuality is a gift, it's like a wonderful part of being human. Because I think sometimes we see it as like we're afraid of it at the same time that yeah. we recognize it's there. And so if we see it as like this is a resource, it's a way to... Um, have pleasure and joy and rejuvenate myself. I think that a lot of women who deny sexuality once they have children also have this idea, like I've been taking care of children all day. Now I have to take care of a husband at night. Like I'm sick of my body just propping up everybody. Okay. (laughs) And no question that they're not going to want sex if it's understood in that light. But if you can think about it as not a way to give to your husband, but a way to be given to, okay, because mm-hmm. see, I think that in a lot of my work with women, I see that there is a desire to sort of resist being given to, mm-hmm. a resistance to receiving. Now, some people are married to people that are not very generous and don't really want to give, and they want the sex to be all about them, okay? Mm-hmm. But many women are married to men who do really want to give, but they resist the kind of humiliation, I'm not saying it really is humiliating, but what can feel like the humiliation of receiving or letting sex really matter to you or really letting your spouse's generosity matter to you. Sometimes we want this kind of control that comes through being needless and wantless. Hmm. And when you frame up sexuality that way, you're going to keep sex in the frame that you do it to service others rather than a way to really be given to. Hmm. So if you can let sexuality be a way of being taken care of and given to, especially if you're in the rolling up your sleeves, hard work day to day of taking care of young children, then it really becomes a way of your spouse partnering with you to love and give to you given the hard work that you're doing Mm. all day. And so I think the more people see it that way, I think the, the better it is. And 
Um, and I think that letting yourself be able to communicate or learn what it is that you need and want sexually, because sometimes it's so framed up around what men want mm. that women are rejecting sex in part because the sex they're having isn't that great because hmm. it's too much revolving around what they think they should want or what they think men want mm. rather than what makes me feel really cared for. What makes me feel, excuse me, makes me feel really um, good and loved and to let themselves be open to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so interesting. I love that. So we have time for one last question. I just want to open it up to you. What would be one last piece of advice you'd want to share with the women who are watching today? Gosh, I just think, well, I think being a woman is like a wonderful thing and women's sexuality is phenomenal. I mean, men are often framed as the sexually competent ones, but women have, if I had to say who has higher sexual capacity between men and women, I would say it's women. Huh. Women are just choosier about their sexuality. Oh. Women are a lot more careful about whom they're going to show up with and really if they're going to allow this part of themselves to be known. But huh. women's sexual capacity is amazing. The depth of it, the amount of it's connected to their own souls. And so it's a wonderful thing to make space for to try and craft in yourself in a way that really blesses your life and isn't just about managing a demanding spouse or something. Yeah. Um, and so I think recognizing also not only how wonderful women's sexuality is, but how fundamental it is to feeling at peace with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, one of the, I teach online courses and one of the courses that I teach is very, very much around, it's a women's sexuality course and it's, it's about women's desire but it's very much around understanding sexuality and desire as really being fundamental to forging self-confidence and clarity within ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's not a course about how to be more sexually competent so you don't disappoint your husband. That's not the course. <laughs> the course <laughs> yeah. The course is very much around reclaiming this fundamental part of being human, of being female, and integrating with that strength to be better women, better partners, better parents. Right. I love that, which is what we want. And I think that course is a fantastic follow-up to this interview. So we'll definitely link that below. And I, I own the course myself and I love it. So I highly recommend it. But you also have some other courses. Will you just quickly mention? Sure, sure. So, the, so I have a, um, a two couples courses. One is a relationship course and one is a sexuality course for couples. And they, I've created them for an LDS audience. Uh, they're not high on theology. They're referencing kind of some of the um, limitations mm -hmm. that we've been offered, sort of limited paradigms that we've been offered, and some of the really solid and, and good paradigms that we've been offered within a religious framing. But a lot of non-religious people and other religious people relate to it. Mm -hmm. So I have the couples course in which I'm talking to men and women about knowing how to confront what limitations they bring to their marriages that undermines their ability to forge emotional and sexual intimacy. And so the relationship course, of course, is more focused on the relationship itself, the emotional intimacy of it, and what kinds of um, things that it really is about what you can do to make a difference within yourself. I mean, if your spouse is listening to it with you, of course, they can do the same. And it, of course, that's ideal. 
but you learn a lot even just through going through it yourself to see mm -hmm. yourself more clearly and to see how you are co-constructing some of the challenges that really get to you in your marriage. You know, some of the things you're like, my spouse is always doing X, Y, and Z. And it allows you to see how you actually are often doing things that make it easy for your spouse to do exactly what they do. Oh. And the way that they, your spouse does things that make it easy for you to do what you do. I mean, couples really work in these kinds of systems in which they reinforce each other's strengths or each other's limitations. Yes. Oh, so, yeah. So, and then the sexuality course is similar, but the focus is really on how to forge a sexual relationship in which you both feel that you're, you're that you really both get to show up and create something that's satisfying and meaningful and loving for both of you, not just a one-sided sexual relationship like many people create. Yes. Yeah. And so, and then there's the women's course that I talked about that's more for women really kind of understanding and anchoring more into the core of who they are as they you know, to forge a deeper sense of self and a deeper sexual identity in the world. Yes. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. We'll also link your Instagram and your Facebook below so people can go follow you and continue to learn from you. I know you have different podcasts that you're on sometimes. I know okay. there's, there's a group of us who are always like finding you wherever you go and listening to everything you do. So I appreciate you coming to the summit and, and teaching us all this wisdom. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about female sexuality and desire, visit Dr. Finlayson Fife's website today and look for the Women's Sexuality and Desire course under the online courses tab. This online course includes 11 hours of video instruction, weekly assignments, as well as a year of monthly access to Dr. Finlayson Fife's opinions and thoughts on your specific questions and situations. You can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website at www.finlayson-fife.com. Thanks for listening.